0: All right, this is our last week going through the Old Testament. So we are going to be in Malachi. So you can go ahead and turn there if you want to. <clears throat> so I'm, I'm nearly 30 years old now, and so I feel like I'm old enough that I can start picking on teenagers for their immaturity, which was a weird thought. Like, I thought of that as, a, as a, like an illustration for a sermon. I thought, wow, it's weird that I can even do that. Um, Very few of us in this room, very few of us have parented teenagers, but uh, all of us have been teenagers at one point in time, so we know how it is, right, being a wrecking ball of emotions and stubbornness and ignorance, right? (laughs) You don't, I don't, I don't remember ever being that way. Maybe some of us don't remember That, that, the stubbornness still sticks around, right? Uh, never got over it. Yeah, some of us, that's true. Um, not to overgeneralize or anything. I'm sure some of you are great teenagers or are great teenagers. Um, but my, I, I haven't parented teenagers yet. My, my kids aren't teenagers, but sometimes they act like they are. Like you get kind of glimmers and you're like, mmm, that's a hint. That's foreshadowing of something that's going to come. Uh, lately, the boys in particular, uh, I think Emma does this sometimes, but the boys in particular lately, when we discipline them for some sort of wrongdoing, and you can be sure it's wrongdoing, um, we'll, we'll put them in a timeout or something, or, or we'll, we'll tell them to go and clean up their room, uh, or, or some, something. Um, whatever it is, lately, the boys have taken to, um, well, they'll fuss about it like they normally do. But then with their door closed while they're sitting in their bed, taking a nap or being in timeout, or doing a chore or whatever, um, you'll hear them yelling from the room across the house, you are a mean daddy. You are a mean daddy or you're a mean mommy. And like you can, you can hear them telling us this from, from across the room. And it, it doesn't really, it doesn't faze me too much when they say things like that because I, I know that it isn't true. Like, I, I don't discipline my kids in order to make them suffer. I, I do it in the hope that, that I will be able to teach them rightly through that experience. I don't let them face challenges because I'm unconcerned about their welfare. I do it because I, I'm hoping that those challenges will make them stronger. I do those things because I love them, Right? Today we're going to finish up the Old Testament in Malachi. And to me, and it might just be me, Malachi reads kind of like an argument between a loving parent and an emotional, stubborn, ignorant teenager. Like, that's, that's what I think when I read Malachi. Uh, I think that it has a unique place in the Old Testament because of that. Um, if not the entire Bible because of that, just because of the exchange that's taking place here, it's, it's unique. They're, they're in an argument, God and Israel right now. We've seen that on a smaller scale, like with Job confronting God and saying, why are you right to do these things? And, and Habakkuk, kind of the same thing. So you've seen that on an individual level and those interactions have been insightful. Um, but now this is like the whole nation who, who really wants to bring their arguments against God and God is going to just line them up and respond to them. And it's, it's unique. And, and I wish that we had time to go through the whole thing. I feel like we're probably not going to get time, but there's a lot of good stuff in here. There, this, this conversation is intense in places. Um, but we're going we're gonna to try to get through as much as we can. Um, over the course of the book, the Israelites level several charges. Against God to which he responds directly most people break these up into like six sections and I'm not going to provide you for you those sections But uh, the fancy word that people use is disputations There are these disputes in Malachi that there that and there are six of them going from the front to the back of the book and uh, the most biting charge against God is perhaps the first one that's mentioned So if you haven't already read, let's just read that first uh, two verses. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? So he's speaking to Israel through Malachi. and, And God comes up and says, I love you. And their attitude is, you don't love us. How have you loved us? My mindset when I read that, and and it helps that we've just come through the entire Old Testament, right? We have a picture, kind of an overview of what's been happening. When I read that, what I think is, how, how could a rational Israelite, after considering his nation's entire history, conclude that God did not love them? How could they do that? Because God did a lot for them, right? And we, we, could, we could rattle these off if I were to ask you, I'm sure. He made them, right? That's a big one. He created them for, at the beginning of the world. He chose them to be his people through Abraham. They weren't something. And he made them something. Something. He made wonderful promises to them about how he was going to eternally bless them and bless all the families of the earth through them. He brought them into his presence. Unlike any other nation in history, he gave them the knowledge and wisdom they needed in order to prosper as a people. He led them to a new home that they did not build for themselves He protected them from their enemies. He gave them victory over their enemies in battle. He gave them resources. He corrected them when they made mistakes. He forgave them when they cheated on him. He rescued them when they ran away. And and he declared his undying affection for them despite all the wrong that they had done. Just last week we were reading about how God was going to restore the line of King David, right? And that was something that he had done after disciplining them. And that was a grace to them. He's saying, I'm going to restore you. We talked about God being a restorer of these people who had run away. And in Hosea, two weeks ago, we read about how God's love for Israel, even though they had whored after other gods, he loved them. We didn't read this um, in Hosea, because Hosea is a big book. You can't read all of it in one sermon, but... Uh, Something that stuck out to me in Hosea was just kind of the the affection that he has for them in the midst of their sin. Hosea is all about talking to Israel in the midst of their sin and and the fact that he loves them in the midst of that. I'm just going to read some of this since we didn't get to before. Hosea 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. That language, like he's he's got this little baby that he's teaching to walk is is really cool. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they've refused to return to me. The, sh- the sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. But then he turns. In verse 8, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart... Recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. He disciplines them, but in the midst of all of that, he still speaks really tenderly to them, as though they are his child that he loves. And this is, this is not like distant past. This is somewhat recent history when he's spoken to them this way. And yet, you read that. Israel is talking to God and they're saying, how have you loved us? It just kind of, it comes across as ignorance. God responds in the latter part of verse 2. And he says, He's setting up this comparison between Esau and Jacob. And he's saying, these were two sinful brothers. Not deserving in themselves anything good. And yet one of them prospers. And one of them falters. Why? Because God loves one of them and extends grace to them. Not because Jacob deserved it. But because God says, I'm going, to, I'm going to use you in your sinfulness and I'm going to redeem you. And we talked about this several weeks ago how Jacob screwed up in a number of ways. But God blesses him and renames him, calls him Israel. He has sons, he becomes a nation. The promise that he made to Abraham goes through Israel. And so God points back to him and says, Remember, remember that. That The only reason that Jacob is who he is, that Israel is who they are, is because I set them aside and I said, I'm going to do something through you. And so God calls them to remember everything that he's done up to this point, to love them, to show his love for them. And he specifically said, I didn't, I mean to read, read this, this uh, Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8. He, God says to them, this is just before they're going into Canaan, but he says, and we've talked about this before, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. He loves them. And I wonder if... There are times when, when we question God's love for us. I feel like, yeah, it happens. We, we're in that same boat, and we, we question, does God really love me if he's going to let me suffer this way? Does God love me if, if he had planned all this out, all these hardships for me to go through? Does he have affection for me and, and if, if you doubt God's love, if, if you struggle with that sort of thinking, like the Israelites did, after all of that, even if you know it doesn't make sense, like I, I know it doesn't make sense, but I still feel like God doesn't love me, then I would call us, like God did for them, to remember, like the Israelites had to, all the things that God has done to call us, to himself, All the work that was necessary for Christ to reconcile us to God the Father. Remember those things, because they, it didn't come cheap. It came at great cost to Christ. It wasn't easy, but he paid that price because of the great love with which he loved us. Ephesians 2, 4-7, through you can read about that. God loved us. Even though we struggled the same way the Israelites did, He loves us. Romans 5, 6-8 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. I hope hope that these verses come to mind when you question whether or not God loves you. So, God gives his defense. He gives those verses, essentially calling them to remember what he had done for them. And then after doing that, after proving his love for them, he turns around and questions their their love for him. And pretty much the rest of the book is going to address that. We won't get to all of it, but let's read verse six of Malachi chapter one. A son honors his father And a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table God told them, and, and we didn't talk really in depth about the law uh, when we were doing the overview, but God had given them rules about their sacrifices. They were not to just give God anything. God was very particular, and we've seen some of that in Exodus. We've been reading on Sunday nights in Exodus how God is pretty particular about what he expects, uh, especially right around that time in the, in, in the time of Moses when he was giving the law. There is a lot of detail. In there about what God expects one of the things that he expects is that their offerings their sacrifices will not be the broken bruised ugly leftovers that they have but it's going to be the best their first fruits their choicest things uh, the verse that addresses this particularly is Leviticus twenty-two twenty, 20 where he says you shall not offer anything that has a blemish for it will not be acceptable for you but here we see that during this time, the priests are, are offering whatever. They're giving God their leftovers. So rather than going and out of, a, out of gratitude, going to what they have and saying, I'm going to give God my best. They go and they get what they don't want out of their closet or whatever, or out of their herd, they say, this is junk. I don't need it. I'm going to give this to God. And God says of that, that that kind of attitude is evil. It's the opposite of David's attitude when, when he, was, he was able to give something to God at, at, for free, and, and he said, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to give God something that costs me nothing. I will sacrifice to God something of my best and give that to Him. That's not the attitude that they have. They're giving Him their leftovers. And God says, I will not honor that. I will not honor you giving me your leftovers. And my question for us in relation to that is do we give God our leftovers? Do we do we look at our schedules and say, if I can find time after I've done this list of things, maybe I could do something for God. If I could get to a certain point in my career, then maybe I would do something for God. If I can pay off enough of my debts, then maybe I could... Uh, be generous to the church with something. I feel like we, we struggle here. But the New Testament says the same thing. We don't give animals, we don't tithe the same way they did. It's not, we're not under the law the way they were. But we have an obligation to respond similarly. Uh, in 1 Peter 2 5, uh, Peter talks about how we are priests. We are priests. So he's speaking to the priests here in Malachi. Peter says, we are priests. But we don't, we don't give animals here at church. Thank God. <laughs> but we do give things. Peter says, you yourselves, like, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. We don't have like a temple in the sense that they did. But he's saying that our lives as priests are, are like living temples, for God, being built up. He says, you are a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we have this obligation as priests under this new covenant to offer spiritual sacrifices. Our lives, like nothing, nothing in your life is outside of God's demand, I suppose, for, for you. Like, it's not supposed to be, okay, I'll give God my leftovers. You say, I give God my best. And everything that comes after that is going to flow from that, from my generosity to God. That's supposed to be our attitude. Hebrews 12.28 also says, Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. So is that our attitude? Is that your attitude towards God? You are a priest, He's speaking to priests. And he will not abide by people polluting his name by giving them their leftovers. So what does he say? Verse 10 in that same chapter, Malachi 1. He says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. From the rising of the sun to to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its, its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. So he's saying it would be better for some random person to come up to the temple and shut the doors and say, temple's closed today. Like, doesn't matter who, just come up and shut it down because it's become all about going through the motions. We're just going to give God whatever. We're just doing this, not really caring. He says, it would be better to shut the doors. And so can could, could you imagine, like, if somebody, if somebody, like, locked the doors... To the church, and you show up on Sunday morning one day, and somebody's just standing there like, No, you're not going in there. We don't don't deserve to go in there and sing those songs. We don't deserve to go in there and listen to God's word. We don't deserve any of what we do on Sunday mornings because our attitude is totally corrupted. God is saying to them that it would be better for them to do that than to keep going through the motions and, and giving them, or giving him, their leftovers. Their response. Verse 13. God says to them, But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence, or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord with his blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. God has a great regard for his own name and his own reputation. And rightfully so. This is not some narcissistic, like in, in, in the way that we think of narcissism, like broken people thinking they're amazing and they want all the attention to be on them. That, God is the only one who deserves to be narcissistic because he's the only one who knows what's perfect. He is the only one who is perfect. And so when he looks at broken things, who are, the Israelites in this case, who are supposed to be representing him to the world, and they're just trashing him. They're throwing his name in the mud. He is able to say and he is right to say, I will not stand for that. I am a great king and I deserve better than this. And he tells them that. He says, you just close the doors because my name will be made great whether or not you will make it great. God is concerned for his own glory. And so if that's not... If If we don't have that same concern, then what we do here is in vain. Because God is, remember, God has done amazing things to get us to this point. And he's loved us in a way that we don't deserve. And he's he's paid that price. and, And he deserves more than our leftovers. It's not when when we say we need to give God more than our leftovers it's we don't want to make it this legalistic thing that they made it it's not about checking off the box it's about seeing God for who he is and what he's done and responding faithfully to those things He continues his argument in chapter 2 verse 1 He says, And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I've already cursed them, because you don't lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring, and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. Wow. So shall you know. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people. Inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. So he's calling out the leaders. You know, we think of, we think of the priests in the Old Testament as being the guys who just carry out the sacrifices. The guys who do the dirty work of atonement, but, but they, were, they were commanded to do more than that. Their role was more than that. They were supposed to teach. They were the ones who knew the law the best. And so when, when people came to them, they were supposed to be the ones providing instruction. If someone came to them with a bad offering, then they should have been the ones to say, oh, sorry, no, you might not have heard this, but we can't, we can't accept this. Unless, perhaps, this is all you have. But there were, there were, there were ways out for them if they, if they did not have sheep, bulls, those sorts of things. So, so he was supposed to provide that instruction. It should have stopped with him. When they came to him with those offerings, it should have stopped with him, and they, they should have said, no, let me show you. We, we, we give more to God. We, we don't want to do what you're doing um, because... Here's the law. Here's what God's done for us. Here's how all of this points to God and, and we want to be gracious and, 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 and we want to have gratitude. We want to be generous. They were in charge of showing them all those things. But they didn't. They, they took the broken and the ugly things, the leftovers. They gave them to God. And he says in like the most graphic way possible. Like, I am not going to accept this filth. You can have it back. Any kind of leader in the church ought to be like a little little shiver, right? It's like, make sure that you are right in your instruction. It's not a little thing to be entrusted with God's word. And even as us, even us as we go out and we, we proclaim Christ's word, Christ tells us, again, referring to us as priests, we are instructors. The, the great commandment, uh, the great commission, sorry, for us is not to just to make disciples. How do you make disciples? Jesus ex- it goes further. He says, by teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. So if you think that making disciples is just about inviting somebody to church or just about explaining the gospel, that's a huge part of it. It's a necessary part of it, but it's not all of it because the rest of it says, and teach them to obey all my commandments, Matthew 28, 20. Um, so, so that part of that is on us. Our representation of God's word, it's on us. And, and we need to be careful that we are instructing people properly. When somebody comes to you and says, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? What does the Bible say about abortion? What does the Bible say about all these other things? What does the Bible say about uh, whether or not people are going to go to hell? All these things that that people really, they've got their boxing gloves on coming to you, saying, what does the Bible say about these things? Like they're ready to argue with you. You cannot sit there and back down and say, oh, well, it, it says something else, but whatever. Let's just believe, you know, I don't want to get into an argument right now. Let's believe that everybody goes to heaven. Like that is, that is polluting God's word. And so we as, as representatives of God have to be careful of that. We have to treat it as, as though it's not ours. As though we are, we are representing God and his word, he doesn't change. he continues to talk to them about um, marriage and divorce. I'm going to skip over this one for now because Tanner talked about uh, divorce a little bit uh, with Hosea. But he, he talks to them and says, there's another way in which you have polluted my name. So they've, they've given bad sacrifices, they've given bad instruction, and they've married and divorced at a whim. They've, they've married foreign wives, which they were, they were specifically commanded, don't go and marry idolaters, they'll turn your heart away. And what do they do? Very quickly, they go and they marry idolaters. And, and it corrupts. The, the, the presence of those uh, idolaters turns the hearts of people away from God. They begin to accept all these other gods. And they also divorce at a whim. They start just dissolving these marriages. Like it's not a big deal. And you continue to see this in Jesus' time. You talked about that a couple weeks ago. Uh, but God has a very high view of marriage. And he tells them, and this is, I feel like this is one of the strongest statements in the Old Testament about marriage. So I, I definitely want to point it out to you. We won't go into great depth. But God has a very high view of marriage. And, and this is probably the biggest statement in the Old Testament about it. Beyond the creation statement when he says that they shall become one, you have this. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 15, God says of marriage, Did he not make them one? God made them one with a portion of the Spirit, God's Spirit, in their union. That is a very, I don't know if you've ever heard that before, if you've ever read that before. That's huge. So God is saying that marriages, it's not just about, it's not a a two-person agreement, in a sense. It's not a two-person transaction. It's a three-person transaction. It's this union being made by God. God makes them one, he says. And not only that, he gives them in marriage a portion of his own spirit. That's huge. So the implication of that is that we are not then free to go and marry whoever. You ought to seek someone out in marriage who is passionate about God's name and God's glory. Because when you marry that person, there's this relationship between the two of you and also the two of you and God that occurs here. And it's important. And because of that, it's also not something to be dissolved flippantly. And yet he says that those who go around divorcing, verse 16, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Have faith that God is in that marriage. wondering how much time we have. for. I could, I could just keep going. My plan was to just keep going until I ran out of time because I knew that at some point I'd run out of time. We still, we still have some time, though. So chapter 2, verse 17. Another charge against them. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? At every turn, they're just like, what do you mean? What do you mean we've done this? By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or by asking, Where is the God of justice? They no longer have any faith in God's justice. They they no longer think that God is going to honor His, his own purported justice. He says he's a God of justice, but they look around and they see how evil people get away with horrible things and they say, God doesn't care. He's not going to do anything. They get away with things all the time, and yet, look, they're rich. That's their attitude. And they say, if he were just, he would have done something about them. And, and we sit here and suffer, even though we are supposed to be the righteous ones. We're supposed to be the ones that he called out to bless. And yet we sit here and we're suffering. That, sack of, that's, that latter argument was false because we know that they haven't been righteous through all of this. But they're calling God's justice into question. And he says that those words are wearisome to him. People do this now, too. Uh, I think it's 2 Peter um, talks, I, can't, I didn't bring up a verse for this one. But talks about how in, in the last t- days, towards the end of the world, people are going to look around and say, listen, if God were going to intervene, He would have intervened already. It says that that's going to be happening up until the end. But in Peter, it says that God is not slow, as we would count slowness. He's patient. And, and what we regard as Him being slow, or maybe even not acting is actually him biding his time saying, I have appointed a particular point in history when things are going to turn. And there's not going to be be any turning back. There's not going to be any more second chances. That's going to be it. We continue to live in a time where where we are waiting on God's justice. But we pervert God's character when we say that he will not execute wrath against people. He will not carry forth his justice in the world. And I feel like this is, this is related. You could draw this to us. They were complaining about unjust people and saying God's not doing anything to judge them. We pervert justice in a different way, I feel like in, in, in our culture anyway, um, where we say God is not really going to bring wrath that's a perversion of his justice to say, ah, you know what? In the end, God's going to, uh, you know, everybody's going to be okay. Everybody's going to be okay. It doesn't matter if you believed in Jesus. It doesn't matter if you, if you cared about God. Uh, in the end, everybody's going to be okay because God's just going to sweep that under the rug and say, you know what? I took care of it. Don't worry about it. That's a perversion of God's justice because God proclaims his justice all throughout the Bible. And he says, no, there will be a point in time when I will no longer be patient. And you need to prepare for that. And so that's why we proclaim Christ so loudly, so urgently, hopefully. Because there is going to be a point in time, and we don't know when it is, that God says no turning back. What's done is done. And we pervert justice when we say, God's not going to come in wrath. He's not going to do those things. That's equivalent to the Israelites, who we talked about recently, who were in, who were in Jerusalem. We didn't talk about this in depth either. But um, during Jeremiah's time, uh, there, were, there were leaders in Israel, in Jerusalem specifically, right around the temple, who said, God is not going to come in wrath even though Jeremiah, Isaiah, all these prophets are coming around, they're saying God is going to destroy us if we do not repent. And these guys are in Jerusalem saying, no, it's not because God loves, you know, God, God is not going to, he's not going to spank us. He's not going to discipline us because, because that's not who God is. We are his chosen people and they keep yelling like for decades, these prophets were in their midst saying God is going to come in judgment. And they said, no, no, don't worry about it. Like, we do the same thing when we say today, you know, believe whatever you want to believe, God's going to take care of you. Like, that's that's perverting instruction. That's perverting wisdom and knowledge. So we need to be careful. All right. He also goes after them for not tithing. They're not tithing. They're not giving things to God. They're not being generous. And like them, we're told to be generous. Not because we have like this, this legal requirement, give me a 10% of everything. We don't have that. But we do have in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 9, uh, where Paul talks about being generous because of what God has done for us and giving things. And that means more than money. It means your time. It means everything. And so we're called to be generous. But here's here's the crazy thing. At the end of the book, and this is the end of the Old Testament, at the end of the book, God is hopeful. He makes them new promises. He says to them in chapter 4, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble, the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I act, says the Lord of hosts. So he, he reaffirms... I am going to act. My justice will carry forth. My name will be made great in the entire earth. And those who are faithful will be blessed. He reaffirms that. And he tells them, verse 4, Remember. Remember the law of my servant Moses the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel, remember. And behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. He continues to make promises of hope to them. Why? Why? Because he loves them. He loves them. And He loves us. And He shows His love for us. Because even though we give Him our leftovers, and even though we give Him what is broken and just messy from our lives, and and we don't regard His name with our spiritual sacrifices, Christ comes. And He offers a perfect sacrifice on our behalf. Hebrews 10, 11 through 14, you can read about that. Christ comes and offers himself as a perfect sacrifice for us, even though we were giving bad sacrifices, our giving. Christ will also supply perfect and complete knowledge at his coming that will override any of the falsehood that we or anybody through history has proclaimed. He will come and give us perfect knowledge. 1 Corinthians 13, 8-10. He will be joined, Christ will be joined to his bride, the church, in fulfillment of marriage's ultimate purpose, which is in Revelation 19, 6-8. He will prove, Christ will prove, that in giving away everything that you have, you have only gained. And then Christ will judge all men and bless and punish them accordingly. All these issues that God is, is now here at the end of the Old Testament saying, we still have problems. All of these things, Christ is going to come and fix. He's going to reconcile Our broken relationship. The Israelites' broken relationship with God. Our broken relationship with God. He's going to come and He's going to fix that. He's going to carry out His plan for salvation despite our frustrations, our anger, despite our failures, despite our rebellion. Christ is going to come and carry out His plan for salvation. Not because we deserve it, but because He loves us. And he will glorify his name. He will be recognized. He will be praised in all the earth. Let's pray.